Okay, um, do you know what your minister is talking about if I talk to you about a word cloud? Do we know what a word cloud is? There's a few blank looks and a few nodded heads. A word cloud, if you don't know what a word cloud is, a word cloud is a picture, let's try and envisage it, a poster, and it's a poster or a picture of different words. That's all it is. doesn't sound very exciting. Usually a word cloud will depict, let's say, text, maybe all the text from, let's go for a very famous speech or something like that. And the more often a particular word is used in that speech, the bigger the word will appear in this picture. Does that make sense? Or does it sound like gobbledygook? I I really did fear that it would sound like gobbledygook to everyone. And that's why... I have a picture of a word cloud on the screen. So this is a word cloud. It is intention. Let me quote. The idea is to visually represent the weight given to certain words in a particular context or a particular speech. So we've all got it now. I feared that we wouldn't be able to explain it. We have a picture. This is a word cloud. That's tremendous. We can, we can put that back down. Okay. If we had... Um, a word cloud for the life of our church of St. Peter's. So a word cloud that would represent what is said in our Bible studies, what is said in our conversations, and what is said in our sermons. I wonder what would be the biggest words in that word cloud? What would be the word that we use as Christians more often than not in these sorts of settings? wonder what your guess would be we would hope maybe it would be Jesus front and center, would we? God, salvation, maybe sin, who knows? This, though, is my guess. I think biggest on the page might be this word, the word grace. That's a common word in the life of St. Peter's, isn't it? We are a people who know all about grace. We are a people who know undeserved blessing from God. We are a people who understand sola gratia, that it is by grace (laughs) that we have been saved. Grace alone, that's surely front and center of our worship and of our praise. But, okay, what or of what does that grace entail? Do you see the nature of the question? Yes, God pours out undeserved blessing. God blesses his people. But what sort of blessings do we receive? What constitutes that grace? Well, this morning, as we look at this chapter, Genesis chapter 48, I think really and truly that is what, what, is, uh, what we are confronted with here. That we are face to face in this chapter with aspects of the blessings not just that God, God's ancient people receive, but we are face to face with aspects of the blessing that you receive in your life as a Christian. We will see something of God's grace in this chapter of his word. So, you know what I'm going to invite you to do? I'm going to invite you to please turn with me to that portion of scripture. <coughs> so, if you've got it on your phone or you've got a, a copy of there are some copies of the Bible at the back if you want to run and get those. Uh, But turn to Genesis chapter 48, 
And the first thing that I think strikes us here, or should strike us, is adopting grace. Let's get that. Let's think about that together. Adopting grace. Okay. And the first thing, the first question you might have for me this morning is, why is it that just now we're not focusing more on the end of Genesis chapter 47? Maybe you're asking that. So we've read it together. So you might say, okay, Andy, you've read it, but why are we not lingering longer on the end of the previous chapter? Uh, Well, throughout the book of Genesis, what you find, actually time and time again, are what we might think of as trailers uh, for coming sections of Scripture. You get the idea. It's not a difficult idea, is it? That we get little precursors in Genesis, time and time again throughout the book, that kind of anticipate some of the themes and the ideas of the section that's about to come. And that's really what we've got at the end of Genesis chapter 47. So it's a preview of what's going to come. So you can see what we're doing this morning, just as you might do at home, sitting on your couch, watching Netflix or watching Prime or something. What are we doing this morning in order that we eventually get to the end of the sermon series? uh, We're pressing skip on the trailer, on the preview, in order for us to be able to get our teeth into the main feature uh, of this next section. Now, As we go into that section, okay, as we turn into Genesis 48, on the surface of things, it might you seem very, very familiar, does it? Because I think we know that it was common when uh, patriarchs were on their deathbed, when they're sick. What would they do in the book of Genesis? We know this, don't we? The patriarch would summon the next male heir, and they would extend a blessing upon that next male heir. We know that. That's what's happening here, isn't it? Like, you notice at this point, like Jacob's been talking about his death in every single speech that he's made for a long, long time, right? He's been talking about his death a lot. But what's happening here is there. So Jacob is he's over 100 years old, and he is sick, he is unwell. And what does he do? He does summon Joseph to his bedside, He's there, and so we might think it's familiar, but there's a lot more going on than that. Honestly, there is. Now, this is what we need to do, every one of us. We need to look at verse 5. Now, if we don't get verse 5, we're not going to get the rest of this chapter of Scripture. So if we could look at verse 5, and if we're able to, let's just put it up on the screens. Now, this is the heart of what we're dealing with this morning. So will we read it together? Young and old, let's read it. What do we have? Excuse me. So Jacob says, he summons Joseph, summons sons, and he says, And now, Joseph, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, what does he say? These boys are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. So does everybody see? Let's leave that up there just for a little bit. Does everybody see what's going on in this portion of Scripture? You have the grandfather. And what you've got is he is legally adopting two of Joseph's sons, just at the point where he's about to die. And in fact, although, you know, let's be honest about it, it's not uh, so obvious from a sort of surface reading of the text, what you've actually got in front of you are a lot of elements that were common to adoption ceremonies 
from the ancient Near East, from the ancient world. Okay, so lots of things in this chapter common to adoption ceremonies. Let me just throw a few at you. So there is a statement of credibility. You can see it if you look at verse 3. So this is what would happen in adoption ceremonies. There would be a statement of credibility. So Jacob says, God himself has appeared to me. And he goes on like that. So you have that. Then, if you let your eye fall to verse 8, there's a, there's, it's quite an unusual question. Do you see it? It's a legal question where Jacob asks of the boys, whose are these? Do you know what that's like? That's, can you remember the most recent wedding you've been at? That's like the question that the minister will ask in a wedding. You know, the, the, the bride will come down the aisle, music, I won't hum or sing the music, but the bride will come, uh, you know, perhaps the father with her, and what will I ask? I'll say, who is it that gives this lady away to be married? I know the answer to the question. Everybody knows the answer to the question, but it's a legal question. You see, that's what we're dealing with here. Jacob knows the answer to the question, but in this adoption ceremony, he's saying, and who are these? Do do you see? And then the last one here as well, there's others, but I'll point you to verse 12. And I find it fascinating as well. Do you notice what happens from verse 12? That Joseph has put the boys on uh, Jacob's knee. That was a highly symbolic moment. So the knee in the ancient world was symbolic of uh, parental concern. Do you see on the knee as part of this adoption ceremony? So everybody got it. Everyone's with me, do you? This is an adoption rite, an adoption ceremony where the grandfather, just before he's going to die, is legally adopting Ephraim Manasseh as his own sons, okay? He's not here today, um, so I don't have to worry too much about embarrassing him, but there is somebody in the congregation who has an MBE. (laughs) Uh, I I don't have to worry about embarrassing because I was was speaking to him about it earlier on uh, this week, and he knows fine well that I'm going to talk about it today. Uh, so there's a, there's a gentleman in the congregation with a member of the British Empire. So we were chatting about it, and I, and I was sort of saying to him that this was, this was my theory about the MBE, that though an incredible honor, amazing honor, uh, my theory was an incredible honor, but does it have huge impact on this chap's life day by day? See, I know where he works, and I know what the atmosphere is like in his workplace, so before the, uh, the MBE, there would have been a lot of crack in, in the workplace. A lot of laughs and a lot of mickey taking, I think, you know. Then he gets his MBE. And what happens afterwards? <laughs> Same thing in the workplace. There's a good laugh and it's fine. There's a joke. Do, do you see the idea that state is in a sense, the title has changed, but in a sense, without many in the ways of practical day-to-day consequences. So the question that we come to with Genesis 48 is, well, wait a minute, is that the same for Ephraim and Manasseh? Is this just a formality? Like they are legally adopted, does this have no impact whatsoever? Well, well, no, because look again at verse 5 and look at the very end of this verse. This is why we've left it up. Look, look what happens. Look what Jacob actually says. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as what? Do you read it? As Reuben 
and Simeon are mine. Now, who are they? They are Jacob's eldest sons. So do you see what is happening in this adoption? What's happening are these two blokes here, Ephraim and Manasseh, they are being risen, exalted to the state of firstborn sons. Do you see what that means? It means in a moment in this adoption, they are exalted to a position where they are going to have tribes named after them. They're going to be risen, exalted to a position where they are going to have an inheritance. You have to understand this. That in this adoption, in just a moment, they become co-inheritors with their uncles. This isn't just something insignificant. This isn't just, just a title change. This is major. This is massive. They're exalted to an, an amazing place, and it all comes through adoption. What did, um, what did I say at the start? What did I say? I said that this morning we would think about grace. And together, as a congregation, we would think about aspects of grace and what we receive by undeserved blessing. I think if you're a Christian in this room this morning, I think you already see where we go with this, don't you? Though the doctrine is, I think, overlooked, and it's almost always relegated, relegated behind justification, it's relegated behind sanctification, can you see what we are pointed to by Genesis 48? It is the glorious truth that you have been adopted. You have been adopted by a father. You have been adopted by God. But perhaps you are guilty of thinking about these things in the way that I have thought about these things for so long. <laughs> When it comes to adoption, I've thought like this, that it really is just a technicality or a formality. This is how I used to, used to think. You will laugh at me. Not for the first time, I'm sure. I used to think, you know, when we get to heaven as Christians, the angels are going to look at us and just wonder, what on earth? <laughs> what on earth are these guys doing here? You know, we get to heaven and the angels see, yes, God the Father we know he loves God the Son. But these guys, what are they doing here? These guys are just hangers-on, surely. They are here, if anything, just by a technicality. They're not true children of God. And if you, in your Christian experience, even for a second, begin to think that way, you have to understand nothing could be further from the truth. You've got to remind yourself of what the Almighty God says to you, speaks to you from His Word. Will you hear it? Listen to what He says to you about the validity of your adoption. John 1. Oh, listen to this. God, but to all who did receive Christ, who believed in His name, God gave the right to become children of God. It's valid, it's authentic. Okay. Romans chapter 8, listen to this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then he goes on, doesn't he? And if children, what are we? Then heirs, heirs of God. And then 
and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Our adoption, your adoption, Christian friend, is not this nice little technicality or a formality. It is not that you are adopted to a second-class status. We are not hangers-on. <laughs> we really are authentic children of God. You need to understand this. You need to grasp it right now. God looks at you as being as much his child as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You are as much a child of God as the Son. As soon as we come to Jesus Christ in faith, what happens? We're born into a new family and we are given in that second a new name, a new family name. And what happens? We are granted an inheritance. Do you see it? That inheritance that Jesus Christ has secured for himself due to Jesus Christ in our adoption, we become co-heirs, co-inheritors of that beautiful future God has mapped out for us. And I think sincerely that for St. Peter's should lead to one practical application. What should it lead to? It should lead to greater, more fervent praise of the name of God, even right now today. See, I think you know, if you've been here for the sermon series, you know, or even if you know the book of Genesis half well, you know that through these chapters, there's been one common theme, one common thread. What is it? It's Jacob's love for Joseph. Haven't we seen that all the time? Can you remember way back way back to a different era when we begun this sermon series. Do you remember Genesis 37? Do you remember the cloak? Everybody remembers it. Why was it given? Love from Jacob to Joseph. Wasn't it that that caused the problems with the brothers? Wasn't it that the brothers had to come to terms with? Don't you even see it in this chapter, at the end of the chapter? Do you see it? Jacob loves Joseph, gives him this strip of land right at the end here. You see it? Ah, wait, do you see the significance? This adoption that we're dealing with, adoption, it's in the context of a father's love for his son. You see it, don't you? There is no adoption without the father's love for the son. It is the son here who brings Ephraim and Manasseh to his father for adoption. And surely you recognize, Christian friend, the same is true for us. This is a glorious privilege. And it only comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It only comes to us through the Son of Man. Let me read Ephesians 1 to you. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So you hear it, Christian friend. It is Christ who has brought you to the Father for adoption. Now listen carefully. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has heard the legal question. Whose are these as Christ presents you in salvation to the Father? You hear it, that it is Christ through his blood and through his righteousness that he has placed you on the knee of God the Father for adoption. I think you see here with all of the other doctrines that we love, you see here, as always, that we owe all to Jesus.
So we see adopting grace. Second thing uh, we have to notice from Genesis 48 is electing grace. Electing grace. Let's consider this blessing, the actual blessing that we've got here. So electing grace. Uh, So I've been a minister for quite a while, so down in London, then up here. So you can imagine that I've done a lot of weddings uh, in my time. Um, That's bread and butter. That's what ministers do. We do a lot of weddings. Um, I love doing weddings. It's a real, it's a beautiful thing to do a wedding for so many reasons. Lots of gospel opportunities in weddings. You get to do marriage preparation courses with people, get to talk about marriage. Really, it's it's a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. It is. Not try to convince myself. It is a wonderful thing. There is one aspect of weddings that uh, I struggle with, and that is, and I haven't had to do it in the the last couple of weddings that, that I've done, but it is the dreaded wedding rehearsal. <laughs> a wedding rehearsal can be a minister's just nightmare. You can maybe see why it is like that, can you? So there's me. I want to be organized, okay? And I want everybody to know exactly what they're going to be doing the next day so that they can relax and enjoy their wedding. But what happens at a wedding rehearsal? Everyone is excited (laughs) and everyone ignores the minister. So I'm like, you stand there and they're not listening. They're thinking, we haven't seen you in ages. No, you, you stand there and they're thinking about dresses and bits and things that go on people's heads and I don't know, flowers and no, stand there, stand there. Now you see this picture of a completely ineffective stage manager because that's how I feel at these times. You see that picture? Ineffective stage manager. That, in many ways, is Joseph in Genesis 48, isn't it? I mean, I think all of us in here know that the right hand, do we? The right hand was of great symbolic significance in the ancient world. Do we all appreciate that? I think we do. We only need to think about the location of the Lord Jesus Christ right now to recognize that it was symbolic, isn't it? So what was the right hand? It was a place of, what would you say? It was a place of honor. So we can all recognize that to be under the right hand was the place of privilege, wasn't it? It was a place of blessing. And so you can see what Joseph's up to when we get into Genesis 48, can you? He gets Manasseh. Who's Manasseh? Eldest. Where does he place him? At his no, left side, places Manasseh at his left, places Ephraim at Joseph's right. Why? So that when face to face with Jacob, it will be the other way round. And in accordance with sort of social convention at the time, what will happen? The eldest, Manasseh, he's going to receive, oh, he's going to receive the blessing. The eldest will receive the, what happens? Well, you, can, you can see it, can't you? The drama and the tension of it all right at that significant moment. Just about the blessing is about to be conferred. What, what happens? What does Granda do? What does he do? You see Jacob and you see him cross his arms, don't you? The, oh, much to, do you notice? Much to Joseph's disgust. Jacob places his right hand 
on the younger, on Ephraim's head. And though, let's not get it wrong, Manasseh is blessed, and blessing is promised to him, that pales into absolute insignificance with the blessing and the fruitfulness that is promised to whom? To the younger, to Ephraim. What do we think about this? I think there's three things that we ought to think about here. Let me just rattle through them. One, do you not agree with me? That Joseph, perhaps, should have maybe anticipated that this might happen? Don't you think so? If you know Scripture, you know that what we find in Genesis is something similar time and time again. Isn't that right? Can you think back through Genesis, scan it in your mind? Do we not notice that time and time again, what happens? That the older brother, everyone get it right with me, please. Time and time again, the older brother is passed over in Genesis, time and time again, in favor of someone else. I feel like testing you. <laughs> you know, the Bible says, how many times does that happen in Genesis? Can we think of examples? The older brother passed over for the younger? Come on. Uh, Cain and Abel? Where else would we go? Ishmael and Isaac? Wait a minute. Esau and, and, and Jacob? Where else would we go? Reuben? and Judah, and we've got Zerah, and Perez. Do you see see what I'm saying? Do you not think that Joseph maybe, maybe, maybe should have anticipated something like this might happen here? That's the first thing. Second thing, you see this blessing that comes to the younger, to Ephraim. We all need to understand that that is later fulfilled, and fulfilled in abundance. I think you know that, don't you? If you can think about the Old Testament, what happens? that though the seed, the line of the Messiah will transfer to the tribe of Judah, what's going to happen with Ephraim? Oh, wow. There's going to be blessing. Can we think about the beginning of the book of Numbers? What happens there? That Ephraim far surpasses his brother and the tribe of Manasseh. Surpasses him in in terms of stature and, and number, So this tribe, the tribe of Ephraim, is going to go on to become the dominant tribe in the northern kingdom. What am I saying to you? I'm saying that this, what a surprise, this prophecy is fulfilled. But it is the third of the three things, oh please, Christian friend, that I want you to linger on. And it's quite simply to say to you again, this, this should lead your heart to thank God this morning and it should lead your heart to praise Jesus Christ. Because I don't know some of you in here, you know, and some of you might be visiting, it would appear, and there might be people in here who aren't used to this, honestly, let's be frank about it, and you might not be used to being in a church at all, and you might be wondering, what are these people doing? Really? Like, you might be sitting there wondering, like, why on earth would these people think about something from thousands of years ago? Some grandfather switching his hands and placing a hand of blessing. Why? You might be asking, what has this got to do with me? And I would respond to you, it has everything in the world to do with you. And the New Testament, it makes the relevance clear. Now listen to me, please. Paul the Apostle, In Romans chapter 9, wait for this. Do you know what he does? He shows you that this 
picture you've got in Genesis of blessing coming to an unexpected brother, Paul later says, this is how God works in salvation today. Did everyone hear that? So you might be thinking, this seems obscure. This seems unusual. Romans 9, Paul says, no. This is how God works. Unexpected blessing to people. This is how God works in in salvation election. What does Paul say? He says, God, eh, what does he say? He says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, and then I will have mercy on those I will have mercy. Does everybody follow? Please, do you see? God, just as in Genesis 48, is not a God who works just by social convention. God is not a God who just pays attention to what we regard as the order of nature. It is the traditional way. It's the way it should be. God does not pay attention to these things. In salvation, God works by electing grace. God works simply by his divine, sovereign choice. And if you are a Christian in this room this morning or watching online, surely you now see why we would talk about praise and worship because what's the reality for you? Come on. What's God reminding you of here? You are a recipient of electing grace. Isn't that a special thing to consider? What does he say in Scripture? We read in Ephesians, God chose us. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Christian friend, God, what is he going to say? He predestined you in love. Love for you. Love in Christ. That though there are many, many, many older brothers and seemingly more fit and suitable people in this world. What has happened in salvation? God has passed over those older brothers and his favor has rested on you. Now, listen very carefully, please. That though we are all utterly unworthy of this, utterly undeserving of absolutely undeserving, what has happened that Before the dawn of time, as God looks to you, although you're not worthy of this, what has the Father done? Before the dawn of time, God has crossed his arms. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, the hand of favor and the hand of blessing has rested on your head. When you think about your sin and your rebellion, You think about the way that we have lived even this past week. Do you not bow? And do you not praise God for undeserved favor? Do you not praise God for amazing grace? And then the last thing, we've seen adopting grace. We've seen electing grace. But but we end with the God of grace. The God of grace. (coughs) You, You maybe already see where we go here, I think, but I think it is very important just at least for me to mention what, what surely we would agree is an error that we make in the life of the church and an error that we make in the outworking of our Christian faith. This is the error 
that we focus, uh, we focus on the, the, the blessings that we receive to the detriment of the one who gives those blessings. Is that not true? Is that not an accurate, maybe, objection to contemporary Christianity? Like, we're very good in the songs that we sing in the way that we talk, and even in the way we pray. We focus on the gifts, and we focus on the blessings to the detriment of focusing and wonder on the God from whom all blessings flow. And so, it would be remiss, wouldn't it? Not just, just, just to not look, at least, at what Jacob reveals of God here. So, I would ask if we could put up verses 15 and 16. If you've got a copy of the Bible, even the young guys, the young people, look at verses 15 and 16. So, in the heart of this, we have this, this revelation of God's character and who He is, what He has done. What do you see? Verses 15 and 16. I think you're going to see three statements, do you? Three statements about God. Some are more complicated than others, I think, aren't they? Look at them with me. What are, what's the first one? Do you notice that Jacob describes God as the God of his, what is it, the God of his fathers? I think that's simple enough for us all, isn't it? So he's praising God as this God of covenant, isn't he? Praising God as this one who is eternally committed to his family, to Israel. That's the first one. What's the second one? Look at it. See if you can find it. Secondly, he describes God as a shepherd. And again, maybe, maybe, what do you think? Maybe you think, oh, well, this is familiar ground for us. We're, we're, are we used to the Old Testament as well, describing God as a shepherd? Oh, come on, just for a moment, though. Engage with it and remember who's speaking. When he's speaking. Who is it? It's Jacob on his deathbed. What was his job? Was he a school teacher? No, a policeman? Jacob, for decades, for perhaps over a hundred years, he was a shepherd. This is a man on his deathbed in praise who knows exactly what it means to be a good shepherd, doesn't he? And so he really is, from this position, able to praise God as the one who protects his flock. And he knows that God really does that. And he tends to his flock. And he leads his flock. And God is the one who feeds his flock. Do you see it? And then it's the third and the last line. Is it not the most complicated? Do you see? What does he do? He speaks of God as the angel that has redeemed him from evil. And you're with me, are you, when I say that that maybe sounds a little bit strange to us? What do we think about with angels? We think about them as messengers, don't we? These sort of heavenly attendants that sometimes make an appearance in the Old Testament, or right? That's how we think. You need to remember the context here. Where are we? Genesis. Do you not remember as you walk through Genesis in your mind? Time and time again, we meet an unusual figure in Genesis, don't we? a special figure, one called the angel of the Lord, one who appears at times of crisis, one Jacob has met, and one who seems to be, more often than not, not just a messenger, but the angel of the Lord 
one who seems to be on occasion actually the second person of the Trinity himself. You see it? The angel of the Lord, God himself, the Son taking human flesh. Do you see it? Jacob is able to praise God and say, you are my Redeemer. You are the one who has delivered me from all evil, all harm. And I want to end this sermon with an appeal to you if you're a Christian. As we end these proceedings this morning, as you go back out into the world, friend, praise the name of the living God. You surely, as a Christian, can see that this threefold (laughs) triplet of praise, that it points you this morning to the same triune God that you stand before and worship today. Don't you see that? And who is he? But you know he's the one who is eternally committed by covenant to you. He will never let you go. He is for you a good shepherd who will always protect and tend you. And you know also, don't you, that God in the person of his son at Calvary is the one who has redeemed you. He has delivered you from all evil, from all harm. He has redeemed you from all sin. Do you not agree with me that we are a people who have been shown such beautiful grace, a people who are recipients of great undeserved blessing? Allow that grace this morning to spark your heart and to spark wholehearted praise of your God. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, this morning we are first brought low because your grace reminds us of how undeserving we are. Lord God, we run away from you. We sin. We neglect our duties. We rebel. We rebel. We rebel. And yet we look to your word and we are reminded what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have chosen us, though we are so undeserving, that you've adopted us. Lord God, you have taken us to yourself as true and right children of God. And we thank you that you have done that from a heart of a good shepherd, a good shepherd, the one who has redeemed us from harm. Oh Lord, we pray, asking that you would ensure that all glory and honor goes to your name. We pray in that name. Amen.